Good morning. Let's go ahead and turn right to our passage for this morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, hopefully wrap that up this week. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 19. We'll go back and read part of what we've already studied in the last few weeks. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Everyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, we confess to you that we are incredibly needy people. Our absolutely dependent upon you. We are actually so weak, Father, that we don't even recognize our need. Father, we need of you to help us to understand your word. We need you to open our eyes and help us to see truth and to respond to it. Lord, as your children, we want to be yours and we want to see your glory and we want to be conformed to the image of your glory. And we pray, Lord, that through your word of truth, your objective word, that you would change our hearts, that you would sanctify our lives, and that through it you would be glorified in all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I have had the great privilege of meeting with Pastor Josh occasionally and being able to open up and discuss our lives. It's, it's such a blessing to have a brother in Christ with whom you can share freely and you know that they genuinely care about you and they want to hear and they want to participate in your life. And we've had opportunities to talk a lot about what we're reading and studying, books that we're reading. We've also had opportunity to talk about the book of Hebrews where he's at in the, in the book, and, and to be able to discuss the context. Josh has done such a great job. And I've only been around for a short time, 
but he particularly excelled in communicating the heart of verses 19 through 25 in this chapter. And you're indeed blessed, a blessed people to have a pastor who so loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and he loves you, and he loves the truth, and he wants you to grow in the truth. Josh cares about accurately handling the word of truth and instructing clearly from his word so his word can benefit your lives. He cares about that. So as pastors who truly handle the word of truth correctly and understand what that looks like is is a rarity. Josh cares about accurately handling this. And unfortunately, that's the exception, not the norm in our society. A person who understands that and wants to do that. So he, he spent considerable time in 19 through 25 in this chapter because he eagerly desires those things for you as a body. But I told Josh on a couple of occasions, I said rather in a joking fashion, that he would soon have to drop the nuclear bomb of verses 26 through 31. It's an inevitability that as you faithfully preach verse by verse, passage through passage in a book of the Bible, that you're going to come across passages like this that are really difficult to swallow. God has determined the topic, and you must grapple with that truth of that topic. And, and you're forced to, to, under, to deal with the implications of what that truth says. So this latter part of chapter 10 seems like a really harsh topic. But shouldn't we focus on God's love and forgiveness isn't, isn't this kind of a side issue? Shouldn't we think more about the gospel? Let's turn with you for a minute to Acts chapter 10 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 10. And we're going to start at verse 36. This is very early in the life of the church. It's the beginning. And Peter has arrived at the home of the Gentile Cornelius. He's a centurion. And by God's divine intervention, Cornelius has gathered together all his friends, all his relatives, all his family to hear the gospel message from the mouth of the apostle Peter. And Peter says to them, he says, As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify... What, Peter? What did God command you to preach to the people? That he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Folks, the coming judgment is not a side issue. And it's certainly not contrary to the gospel in any way. It is rather part of the gospel. It is a necessary part of it. Jesus Christ is our Savior. We believe in the grace of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, and we love him. These are realities. But Jesus is also Lord. He is king, and he is judge to the highest and truest sense of these words. Jesus Christ is Lord. And there there have been many rulers, there have been many leaders, many authorities on the earth that have existed. There are even a few dictatorships that exist in our world today. We in America are simply disconnected from an understanding of what a ruler really looks like. We are so bent on our Western democratic world in which we live. We demand personal liberty and rights. Becky and I in 2007, we were in the Middle East, and we were in Jordan at the time for a few days, and our bus driver on this tour, he kind of described life in Jordan, and they have a king, 
They don't have a president, they have a king. And he described times when this king would say, today you will not leave your house, you will not go to work, you will stay home. And guess what the population did? They stayed home. You know why? Because that king had absolute power to arrest you, throw you in prison, or execute you. So when you have a king, you do what the king says. We don't, we're disconnected from that here. We don't understand. That's foreign. But Jesus Christ is the only true king that has ever existed. He is king of kings. All other authorities are way, way beneath him. They have no power to resist him whatsoever. Everything ultimately does his bidding and obeys him. He is the only ruler, and every knee will bow before him. He is Lord. The scriptures say he is Lord. It's the word kurios in the Greek. It means the sovereign master, the owner, the controller of another person. It means one who has power and authority. It speaks of one with ultimate authority. Jesus is certainly our Savior. He is our Savior. But it's interesting to note that in the New Testament, it refers to Jesus or calls him Savior less than 30 times. But it calls him Lord over 700 times. That doesn't mean he's not Savior. But it points to the significance of who he is rightly as Lord and King. It cannot be ignored that Jesus is both Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and no one can ever resist his power and authority. And Jesus is also a righteous judge. Folks are marching around today. They are hurting other people, killing other people in the streets. They're looting stores, destroying monuments, burning buildings because they demand what? They want justice. That makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? To to do some of the most unjust things in the name of I want justice makes no sense whatsoever. But believe me when I say that humanity does not want actual justice. You don't want it. Mankind is so corrupt, so twisted, so bent by sin that they have no idea what true justice really looks like. They have no idea. God has placed in our world certain restraints. We have family order. We have fathers and mothers. We have grandfathers and grandmothers. We have, we have authority structures. We have local and federal governments. We have legal court systems. We have the police department. But man still distorts every one of these. Distorts it. Humanity loves self, worships self, and is entirely bent toward iniquity. It's a reality. True justice resides with God. That's where true justice resides. And the idea of receiving true justice, folks, should strike terror in the hearts of every person. Should strike terror. And as Peter states, not even death can hide you from justice. You you can't hide from him. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Even if you die, Jesus will resurrect you and judge you with perfect righteousness. The book of Revelation, in fact, describes people begging for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the presence of the Lord. It's not going to work. I don't care what you do. You are not hiding from him. You're not getting away. Nothing, not even death, can spare you his judgment. It's not possible. The judgment of Christ comes from perfect knowledge, perfect understanding, and perfect righteousness. Jesus said, the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The judgment of Christ knows all things and is dispensed in harmony with the perfection of his nature. And he has the power to raise every person from the dead And everyone who has ever lived will stand before him and they will see his face as he judges them. So listen to the words of of the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. This is when he spoke to the people of Athens. And he said in verse 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead gives assurance, certainty that he is going to return and he's going to judge all of humanity, all of creation. What is more, the day is said to be fixed in this passage. It's a fixed day, just as fixed as the day Christ was born, just as fixed as the day that he was crucified, just as fixed as the exact moment when he would die in our place. There's nothing that will change this reality, this fact. Nor is there anything that will move God's timetable. You're not going to change any of it. So indeed, everyone will run into this together. We're going we're to run smack into it. Many churchgoers mistakenly view the God of the Old Testament as some kind of a judgmental God. And the God of the New Testament, he's really a God of love and grace. Almost like there's two different gods. Folks, God has never changed. God never will. There's not even a shadow or a, a representation of him changing. He does not change. He is immutable. He has always been gracious. He will always be just. Both. And in the image of the judgment seat of Christ, by far is the most horrifying picture of justice within the scriptures. Nothing in the Old Testament compares. So the judgment of Jesus Christ is a crucial part of our gospel, and it's also an integral part of this entire passage that we're looking at. Look at verse 25. All the more as you see the day drawing near, the day that Christ returns and judges. Verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 37, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. There are all these references to the day, the great day, the day of the return of Christ to judge all things living and dead. And it won't delay, it's fixed. And the phrase, in a little while, in our passage, speaks of its hastening. It's rushing at us, guys, in a little while. And while this may seem harsh, this entire passage is actually a tremendous extension of the grace of God to the reader and the listener. It is indeed one of the greatest expressions of love that a person can, can proclaim to warn another regarding the truth. And this section in Hebrews is addressed to two different people groups in our passage. It's, it's divided. Uh, it's, it's looking at the return of Christ and is talking to two different peoples. The first are those who go on sinning, verse 26, Go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Josh spoke about this section last week, and we're going to address it again this morning. Um, folks, that, uh, let me first warn you that hearing the Word of God and agreeing with the information okay, about Jesus Christ is not equal to faith, life, and salvation. Hearing the word of God and agreeing with the information is not the same as salvation. It is not the only necessary aspect. Hearing the truth is necessary, isn't it? We know that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans ten seventeen. But hearing the word of truth and agreeing with the word of truth is not the only necessary means of salvation. Salvation requires the intervention of God through the working of his Holy Spirit. Man doesn't get there on his own. Let's take a minute and we're going to look at this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3 in your, in your Bibles. Romans chapter 3, we'll start in verse 9. Paul has spent the first two chapters of Romans using a whole bunch of judicial terminology in order to build a court case against humanity. And starting in verse 9, Paul delivers his final verdict. He says in verse 9 of chapter 3, What then? Are we better than they? 
Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Jews and Greeks, it basically is, is encompassing everyone without exception. Listen to verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. And just in case somebody says, well, actually, I'm a pretty good guy. He says, no, not even one. Not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Understanding here is speaking of spiritual understanding. No one has it. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Useless is a term in the Greek. It, it means literally, it uh, gives the imagery of food that is so rotten, so putrid and disgusting, there's literally nothing you can do with it except for to cast it out. You can't even feed it to an animal. It is so putrid. That's the word it's using here. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Everything vile and, and defiled and putrid comes out of them. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. So again, apart from the working of the Spirit of God, mankind cannot understand. He can't seek God. He can't fear God. He can't do what is right in the eyes of God. Mankind is completely useless. So let's look at another one of Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 12. And he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Truth is only known and believed by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit. Human wisdom doesn't get you there. Like I said, the, the Spirit of God must connect the spiritual thoughts with the spiritual words. Now look at verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. This says the natural man, the man who does not have the Spirit of God, cannot understand the Word of God. He is spiritually appraised, discerned. He's incapable. Why? Because without the life-giving Spirit, without the mind of Christ, spiritual sense or spiritual truth makes no sense to a fallen, dead individual. Spiritually dead people cannot grasp it and comprehend it. Ultimately, spiritual truth, according to this passage, is foolishness to them. It's foolishness. Now, going back to our passage in Hebrews 10, looking at verse 26, this first group of people that the author is addressing, they go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth. They've got a knowledge of the truth, but they go on sinning. These people have heard the truth. They've been exposed to it. And what do they do? They turn away. They hear it. They have a knowledge of the truth, but they sin against it deliberately. Don't care. The word of God has a very damning name for this kind of person. It's called an apostate. It's an apostate. It is someone who has been exposed to the truth and rejects it and goes on sinning and turns and goes the other way. There's many, many examples of apostasy in the scriptures, tons of it. Remember Lot and his family, how God spared them. He sent angels to get them out of Sodom and Gomorrah before it's destroyed. What happened when they were fleeing? Lot's wife looked back, didn't she? It doesn't mean she just went, oh, and looked back. It, it speaks of her actually looking back with longing 
She wanted to go back. She didn't want to go where God was taking them. She wanted to go back to that. And what did God do? He turned, into, turned her into a pillar of salt. What happened when the Israelites were redeemed from Egypt by the power of God? They constantly complained about God. They complained at God. They complained about their cho- God's chosen leader, Moses. They complained about the provisions. They complained about everything. They were opposed to everything God was doing. They kept saying, let's pick another leader and let's go back to Egypt. Things were better there. And when they finally reached the promised land, they refused to follow God's leading and his provision, and instead they turned away. By God's judgment, the corpses of that entire generation were strewn across the desert. They agreed to the covenant, but they still constantly struggled with apostasy. They agreed with the covenant, oh yes, Lord, we'll do all of this. But they constantly turned away, they served false gods, and they blasphemed the one true God. They had the full revelation, they had had the word of God. But they refused to faithfully obey him and trust him. They refused. What about the New Testament? Lots of examples in the New Testament. Do you remember Demas? Demas traveled with Paul. He sat under Paul's teaching. He watched his ministry. He learned from Paul day after day after day. And Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10, Do your best to come to me as soon, uh, to come to me soon, for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. After all this time, he's turned his back on it says, I don't want it. One of the most striking images of apostasy is obviously Judas. Judas is with Jesus for three years plus, all day, every day, eating with him, being instructed by him, witnessing all of his teachings, all of his miracles. Yet he traded Jesus for worldly gain, even just 30 pieces of silver. And he kissed Jesus in order to betray him. And Jesus said, as as far as Judas, he said it would have been better if he had never lived at all. You think of Satan, the angels. They had full revelation. They departed. Think of the Antichrist. Indeed, All who hear the truth of God and turn away are doomed to their same fate. And what horrifying words of judgment in Hebrews 10 here. An apostate, it says, tramples, it says in the NASB, tramples underfoot the Son of God. Just horrific imagery. Stomping on Christ, walking on him. I mean, the... In the Middle East or in the Eastern cultures, that is the most terrible idea. That's why you'll see them take shoes off their feet and beat images of just being underfoot of another was the uh, the greatest way to, to degrade another. They have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. Christ's sacrifice was not worthy. It was unclean. It was not sufficient. That's the way they're treating it. And they have insulted the spirit of grace. The consequences in this passage are grave. It says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You're doomed. No hope. Remember the primary audience of the book of Hebrews here at the time he wrote this. The primary audience was Jewish. Jews who turned to Christ or were turning to Christ, but were now tempted to go back to the old covenant. They were tempted to go back. And the author is saying to them, hey, listen, Christ sacrificed, the Messiah sacrificed himself for you. If you turn back to the Old Testament system and you reject Christ, you no longer have a sufficient sacrifice. This was the only sufficient sacrifice. Guys, the blood of bulls and goats are not going to do it. If you turn away from this, you have no sacrifice. You have nothing. Likewise, anyone, anyone, who turns from Christ is without a sacrifice of sin for for their sins. They're doomed. Again, it doesn't mean that a person comes to faith 
apart from a work of God and then somehow loses it. The true saints of God don't depart. Scripture teaches us very clearly. This doesn't, this doesn't mean somehow that God was unable to secure them and they got away. Apostates are never redeemed to begin with. As John says in his first epistle, he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. For an apostate, there is no forgiveness. There is no redemption. There is no hope. For the one who hears the word of God, there is just increased guilt and judgment because they've been given every grace, every opportunity to hear it, and they rejected it. And it says, God will judge you. He will take his vengeance on you, and his punishment is intensely severe, it says. And this is the result of apostasy. The person who hears the truth, continues in his sin, and finally just rejects the truth. And again, these are strong words. They're difficult words. But they're given as a gracious act of a loving God. That he puts out a call to everyone, warning them, warning them. His justice will be satisfied, and his justice will not be denied in any way. This is a warning to come to the Son and remain. This is the first group of people in our passage. The author addresses here a group who have a knowledge of the word and turn away. Look at verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Remember the previous group, it was said that they received the knowledge of the truth and yet continued in their sin. The Greek structure is really important here. The receiving of the knowledge of the truth in verse 26, follow me here, is in the active voice. The active voice means they themselves are the one doing it. They came to the knowledge of the truth. They heard it. They learned it. It's done by the subject. They are the ones acting. In verse 32, being enlightened is in the passive voice. That verb is in the passive voice. And it means it is something being done to them. They're not doing it. God is doing it. Remember, a person doesn't come to faith because they have a tremendous intellect. I can never boast. Say, God, you must be really proud of me that I was smart enough to figure this out. Bob over here is pretty dumb. Unfortunately, you must be really disappointed in him. I have no reason to boast. Because by God's grace, by the power of his spirit, he's granted life and understanding. So a person must have the truth and the working of the spirit of God. The former uh, is doing all this work on their own. They came to a knowledge of the truth. In this second group, the Spirit of God has opened their eyes and given them life. And life and understanding comes from God, not from fallen man. So the former group lacked this life, and this is why they continued in their sin. That is why an apostate will turn away from Christ, cease to follow him any longer. So, but uh, what happens to those who are enlightened, those who have the Spirit of God? What do they look like? What do the truly redeemed look like? The author reminds them. He goes to their past. I love this. You endured a great conflict of sufferings. You endured it. Partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They had endured great suffering and loss for the sake of Christ, and they did it with joy, and they still remain. What words of encouragement? They haven't departed. Some of these suffered ridicule and loss firsthand. They were those who, and then there were those who stood by them, it says. So were those who suffered loss and those that suffered with them, that stood by them while they were struggling. 
Remember, the primary audience of our author was initially a Jewish audience, warning them not to return to an old system. Perhaps some of this audience had endured suffering due to the order of Emperor Claudius in 49 AD when he ordered that all Jews had to leave the city of Rome. He kicked them out. Many Jews suffered horribly through that. There was a lot of loss. Some lost everything they had, their land, their, their home. In fact, it was this very event which forced Priscilla and Aquila to leave Rome and go to Corinth. And by God's divine providence, it was in Corinth that they met the Apostle Paul and began to participate in his ministry. But the Jews who turned to Christ endured terrible suffering from the very beginning. Didn't matter where they were or at what time in this time period. This particularly was seen in Jerusalem. We're so separated from true sacrifice for our faith in Christ, guys. We, we are, that's foreign to us. Don't get me wrong, there is terrible, terrible suffering in the world for the sake of Christ today in various places. Very intense. But we here endure very little in terms of suffering and loss for following after Jesus Christ. We really do. It's really minor. But consider the early Jew. If you choose to follow Jesus Christ you were likely banished from the local synagogue, the place of worship. Your Jewish family would likely consider you dead. Sometimes they would even have a funeral. They'd put up a headstone and everything, and they'd have a service, and you were gone and dead to them, and they no longer acknowledged you. They'd completely ignore you. Or maybe they'd ridicule and mistreat you. They would cut you off from the inheritance. You no longer had a place within the family, and you had no place within the inheritance. Your extended family, likely the same. All your friends and neighbors, the same. More than likely, you lost your means of employment. There are some, for some of these reasons that you see early in the book of Acts, that the brothers and sisters in Christ are selling their possessions and giving to each other. Because people are cut off, they have nothing anymore. So they're taking care of each other. Becky and I, years ago, we attended a church in Lakewood, Washington called Lakewood Baptist. And we had a visitor come in. He was just passing through. He was there for, I don't know, three weeks. He was a Jewish man. He was from Israel. And I don't remember where he was headed, if it was to some work or somebody he knew he was going to stay with back east. But he was with us for a short time, and he was a true Jew by lineage and by faith, and he was a serious, very serious about his faith. And one day, somebody in Israel gave him a copy of the book of Matthew. And he read the book of Matthew, and he realized that Jesus Christ was the true Messiah, and he came to faith in Christ. He lost everything. His, he was a wealthy man. He was a highly educated man. He was successful. He lost everything. He was completely cut off from his family. They would not even acknowledge he was, even existed. All of his friends cut him off. When we met him, he was practically penniless. I think we, we went shopping and bought even socks and underwear for the guy. We were trying to help him out on his way. He gave up everything to follow Christ, literally. For these people... Jesus' words in Luke 9 had a significant meaning when he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life and lose it, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And he says again, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So if you love anything more than Christ, you're not worthy of him. You cannot be his. The writer is looking back at the suffering that these people endured with joy. They joyfully accepted this kind of suffering for the sake of Christ because they so loved Christ. And he's looking back at the Evidence that manifests this, this kind of manifestation of genuine life and faith that these people had. He's looking back. 
Peter said this in his first epistle. He opens his epistle talking about how glorious our salvation is and how it's reserved in heaven for us. And he says, in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The suffering that you endure because of what it proves about your faith is more precious than anything this world has to offer, even gold, fine gold. Facing suffering and and the joy But they are not the only ones who suffered loss, these people that that had direct persecution. He describes those who suffer alongside them, demonstrating their faith by enduring it alongside them, caring. We saw this early in the book of Acts, brothers selling their possessions, we talked about. These men like Barnabas selling his land and giving the possession to the church so that it could take care of the needs of others, selling his valuable lands. You see various men who suffered right next to Paul for the cause of the gospel, being chained up and beaten right alongside with him. And you have those who suffered horribly and those who stood by them suffering, side by side. He says in verse 34, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. All of these people favored losing what they couldn't save to gain what they couldn't lose. They favored that. And they had the same attitude as Paul, who said in Philippians, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I counted all things as a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish, literally excrement, everything, that I may gain Christ. So you have all those who come to a knowledge of the truth and they keep on sinning. Josh spoke about these people last week in the parable of the sower. They, they quickly accept it with joy. They're totally superficial. There's, there's nothing underneath. It's all on the surface. When difficulty comes for the name of the Christ, they, they, can, they quickly fall away, quickly run away. Others are choked by the world They prefer the world. These people, they may stick around for a long time, act religiously, learn of the truth, but you never see abiding fruit displayed in them, and they don't stick around. It's superficial. Then there are those who have displayed a track record of faith and love. These people, they love the Lord Jesus Christ above everything, and it displays itself in their obedience and sacrifice. They joyfully accept persecution and mistreatment for the name of Christ. Nothing is more important than him. Additionally, they stand with the saints of God, loving them, favoring them, above themselves. They consider each other, and they bear the difficulties of others, even sacrificing for their sake. So what is the point the author is trying to make with all of this? What's he trying to say? The purpose, guys, is scattered throughout the passage again. It's it's throughout this entire text. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance. Verse 39, for we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of your soul. He's he's offering encouragement here, guys. The whole point is to encourage you to look back over your life and encourage you, go, keep going forward. Put more energy into it. Keep striving. Don't give in. The true saints of God persevere. The children of God don't turn back. We don't stop. 
Last week, I, I took my family to Glacier National Park for four days, and we went on some fairly difficult hikes. Okay, for me, it was pretty difficult. For my, my two 20-something sons, they could probably hike circles around me. But we went on a particular hike. It was six miles in, and it was six miles out, and we climbed some 15, 1,600 feet in elevation. And along the way, we encountered constant uphill hiking uphill, hot sun beating down on us, mosquitoes like crazy. Hannah and Sarah, my my daughters, were just covered with mosquito bites for days. We endured fatigue, sore muscles, and the constant concern that we were going to turn around a corner and run into a grizzly bear. I mean, that's just a reality there. We had a lot of reasons to stop and turn around, but we didn't. We didn't do that. Why? Because we knew at the end there awaited for us a spectacular view that we could never experience unless we finished the course, unless we kept going. Not to mention the satisfaction of knowing that we completed it. That was particularly satisfying for me. It also seemed that the closer you got to the end of the trail, the more motivated you were to push harder and keep going and make it. You think about another example, expectant mothers. Beth Shirey is expecting. I've never been pregnant. I'm sure that's as comforting to you as it is to me. But my wife carried four children, and I've witnessed many ladies who were pregnant and dealt with pregnancy. Women endure a lot of difficulties with pregnancy. It's not an easy thing. They may put on a nice face, but they're, they're struggling. You have morning sickness, some of them horrible morning sickness. Pressures on the bladder, you have aches and pains, your back is killing you, just on and on. There's all these troubles that go along with pregnancy. And then the worst of it, the labor and the delivery. Pain, difficulty, straining. But she endures all of this. Why? Why does she endure all of this? Because of the joy that awaits them at the end. The joy. You who have children... When your child enters the world, it creates emotion. It's amazing. Can't believe it. Jesus said this to his disciples shortly before he was betrayed and crucified. He said this to them. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. I will be, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. It says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy that a human being has been brought into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you, ever. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing in this created universe, nothing that can remotely compare to the bliss of being in the presence of your Redeemer. Nothing. Nothing worth it. For those who are redeemed of God, Christ is the reward, and we don't get drawn away by the world. We don't turn away to a false doctrine. We don't, we don't trip up on self-pride and self-love. We love Christ. Christ is what we want. Remember your redemption and your faith of the past. Keep moving forward. Don't slow down. Don't get distracted. Fix your eyes on Christ. Love him, love his truth, and love his church. Keep going. Persevere. You're not of those who are apostate and turn away. That's not you. So don't weaken. Keep going. And it says in verse 38, the righteous will live by faith and will not shrink back. They won't do that. Before we go, we've got, to, we've got to address this issue of apostasy one last time. What do you do with somebody who's turned away from Christ? What do you do with that? And some of them could even be among us. I mean, you don't know it. So what do you do with an apostate heart? How do you deal with that? There are some 
obvious signs that can show themselves. I mean, the person could leave church altogether and proclaim to be an atheist. I mean, that's pretty obvious. You may have somebody who leaves the church and goes headlong into sin and no longer follows Christ. That makes it very obvious. But we may never know. They might remain as tares among the wheat until the end. But that's not our job. Are we supposed to run around pointing them out? Oh, I think Bob over here, look at him. Boy, he must be an apostate. Is that our job? Is that our responsibility? It's a role of Christ, not you. He will ultimately determine those things. One day, it's all going to be made clear. So what do we do? Verse 24 and 25 again. Josh covered this more than once. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking or assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're to do this constantly, loving and favoring one another, caring for the spiritual life of each other, motivating each other to persevere, And we do this no matter what the spiritual state of a professing believer. It is the same with each individual. No matter where they're at, we're moving them towards Christ and towards that anticipation, wanting to see them grow, to learn, to be sanctified. It's caring for the souls of others in a self-sacrificing way, in a self-sacrificing love. And if we're God's children, then we're going to manifest this continual love for Christ and the saints. And our personal gain, guys, isn't going to be the issue, is it? Amen? Father, we thank you for your truth, your gracious word, in which you warn us of the realities of judgment and truth and righteousness and justice. Lord, you will not be mocked. All things will be judged. But what immense grace that we who are so vile could be redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and we could be yours. And we can look back over our lives and we can see how you made us yours and how we have walked in this faith and we can see the evidence and we can rejoice in that. But Lord, we want to be yours. We want to grow. We want to be sanctified. We want to learn and we want to walk in these things. This world is is so good at distracting our hearts, Father. Don't let us be distracted. Help us to fix our eyes in Christ and delight in him. The one thing that will not be removed from us. We thank you for this time in your word. And may this truth, Lord, sit in our hearts and our minds and be a motivating factor in us as a body and as individuals. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.